And let's pray, shall we, as we um, come and have a look at this passage. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that we can know uh, uh, that as your word is open in front of us, um, that your spirit is present within us. Thank you for that reality, we pray. And we pray that your, your spirit would take your word and help us to um, understand it properly, that we might be doers, not just hearers of it. For your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've noticed how we, maybe more than ever at the moment, I don't know, but we seem to live in a culture, don't we, where the, the image that we project is often more important to us than the truth of who we are. You notice that? If you're on social media, you'll probably definitely recognize that, of course, where our, our profile pictures, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of a, a carefully crafted selfie, aren't they? Which are not taken, of course, to show the truth of what we actually look like, okay? But the way that we would like people to see us, hence the, the beauty filters that are so popular, you know, that kind of airbrush out any, any imperfections. But it's not just in the pictures we take, kind of the selfies we take, is it? But also uh, the articles that we might share or the articles that we might like on, on, uh, uh, on social media or those that we may choose not to share or not to like. Um, they're often selected, aren't they? Not in order to portray us as we are, but to portray the kind of people that we want others to think that we are. You know, so they're, they're, they're like a social media is like a shop window, isn't it, into brand Steve or whatever it might be. Um, in other words, the, the image that we portray is often more important to us than the truth of who we are. It's not unique to our culture, it's present in our culture, but Mark Twain, you know, the author who was writing in the 1800s, he famously said, The secret of success is sincerity. If you can fake that, You've got it made. Yeah, so for him in his day, uh, not just us in our day, truth is not necessarily a black and white thing. It's a lot more grey than that. Truth is what you make it. You know, truth is not nearly as important as the, as the image that we portray. But that's not the way that the Bible speaks about truth very often, is it? The Bible sees things very differently, in fact. Truth in the Bible is a much more uh, concrete concept than it is for, for us very often. It's something much less grey, some, something much more black and white very often. There is either truth, for example, or there's falsehood. Not, not shades of grey in between. And, and what's more, it's essential that we understand what's true and we understand what's false because the stakes are very high. You know, truth leads people to heaven. Falsehood leads people on a path to hell. In other words, there are different um, eternal destinies that are bound up with, with where we stand on what's true and what's false. And the Apostle John is concerned about those eternal destinies as he writes this letter. Um, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll, you'll know a little bit by now uh, uh, as to why John is writing the letter. He tells us, actually, chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the the Son of God, so he's writing to Christians, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, he wants them to be assured. He wants them to be certain that they know God and the truth about Jesus and so know that they have eternal life. That's his concern for them. And of course, he 
as we've seen, he needs to write the letter because there are a group of uh, sort of false teachers uh, around who seem to have left the church that John is in, but they're still plaguing the churches around the region, and their false teaching is undermining these Christians' confidence that they know God, and so they know the truth that leads to eternal life. That's the problem. That's the context. So this is a kind of, it's a polemical letter, really. He's attacking these false teachers. You'll notice the language has been pretty blunt, hasn't he? And he's attacking them because, because their teaching is wrong, and it's in danger of leading people astray, leading them away from eternal life to, towards hell instead of heaven. But behind the, the, the polemics, of course, is pastoral concern. Isn't it? These are, these are people whom John has some pastoral responsibility for. And so he's going to take on, he's going to expose these false teachers who are infecting the churches with their false teaching. In the face of false teaching that threatens to undermine their confidence, John wants them to know that they know God and, and so to know that they do have eternal life. And, and as we've gone through the letter so far, especially you would have seen this last week, John has been giving some kind of signs, hasn't he? Some tests, if you like, of what true Christianity looks like so that they can know that they know God, you know, despite what the false teachers are saying. And there was, a, if you like, there was a belief test, wasn't there? True Christians believe certain things about the person and the work of Jesus, things that you must believe to be a true Christian. But, but we also saw that it's not just about what you believe, but also about how you live. So there was a kind of a, a living test, wasn't there? The true Christian faith actually makes a difference to our living. Christians are not people who, who merely say they are Christians, whilst, uh, as he talks, as he says in the beginning of chapter 2, uh, walk in darkness. So a Christian isn't just someone who says they're a Christian but walks in darkness. Rather, they are people who seek to walk in the light. In other words, to live in ways that are pleasing to God and so obey what what he says. And and when they fail to do that, as as we do, they don't pretend that their sin doesn't matter, but actually they're, they're transparent with their sin. They admit their sin and they depend on the blood of Christ to cleanse them of it. And that, that living test, as, as we saw last week, also has a kind of loving test attached to it, doesn't it? True Christian faith makes a difference to how we actively love one another. In other words, true Christianity is about belief and behavior. It's about faith that makes a difference to our lives. And, and you'll notice similar themes in, in, um, in today's passage as well. In fact, he keeps coming back to those sort of central themes right through the letter. He kind of approaches them from different points and different angles to, to, to reinforce the point that he wants them to be people of substance, if you like. Not, not just people who say that they believe the truth about God, but people who actually do the truth. In other words, not just people who project an image of holiness but people whose lives actually are holy. Because John knows, as we'll see, that both his initial readers and us as well live in dangerous times. The truth is at stake. That there are many people out there who claim to be Christians who are not. There are many others who are in danger of being sucked into false teaching and living like the world. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that for them, and he doesn't want that for us. He, he wants us on the side of truth, not falsehood. He wants us to know God and to know that we know God. 
such that we know we're heading for eternal life and not eternal judgment. The stakes are high. So I think he does two things, really, um, in, in these verses. The first thing he does is he, he contrasts the world and the Christian, and he gives us a command. That's verses 15 to 17. And then he contrasts the antichrists and the Christian, and he gives us a warning. And that's in verses 18 to 27. So let's, let's have a look at the command first, verses 15 to 17. And the command, you can see it there in verse 15, is do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And, and not for the first time, of course, in, in this letter, uh, John writes something that's quite, pretty uncomfortable to read, isn't it? But it's not really very ambiguous, is it? There's no shades of grey to what he's writing there. It's a pretty black and white statement, isn't it? You're either a lover of God or you're a lover of the world, but you can't be both. Actually, um, uh, James, book of James, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, says it even more bluntly than John's saying it here. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred towards God. In other words, if we love the world, we're, we're two-timing God. Now, we do need to be a bit careful here, don't we? We need to define what John means by those words love and world, don't we? Because, for, for example, it, John writes in his gospel, doesn't he, rather famously in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his only son. So how can God command us not to love the world when he clearly does love the world? What's, what's that about? It's in, the, it's in the definitions, isn't it? We need to understand that those words love and world can have different meanings in, in different contexts. So the word love, for example, can be used to talk about the, the self-giving, the self-sacrificial love of God. Or it can be used to talk about the self-centered or self-oriented love that is always on the lookout for number one. And, and likewise, the Bible uses the word world to talk about the, the, the planet that we live on, that, that God has created, the humanity that he's, he's made in his image. That's how he's using it in, in John 3.16. It's the whole human race that God has made in his image that he, he loves enough to send his son to to die for. But the other major way that the Bible uses the word world is to talk about sinful humanity in its opposition to God, its rejection of God. And in this sense, the word world, kind of, it refers to human societies, human cultures that are both opposed to God and therefore alienated from God. And that's how John's using it here. In fact, he's, he's pretty much using the word world in this passage in the same way that he used the word darkness in the last passage. And of course, he, he contrasts that with the light of, of God's moral purity and, and holiness. So, and, that, and that contrast of light and darkness in, in the early part of the chapter is now kind of teased out uh, some more in, in the other contrast that he draws in this passage, truth versus falsehood, love versus hate, the love of the Father versus the love of the world. Do, do, do you see? Um, so, so when John sends, sends, says here that we mustn't love the world, he means we mustn't love these Sinful, rebellious, human systems, cultures, societies, worldviews that we live amongst that oppose and reject and ignore God 
uh, replacing him with their thinking and their ways. But rather what we are to love is God and his ways. And so we're to avoid that which pulls us away from God and, and towards a, a world that rejects God and opposes God. Do, do, do you see the point? So, so when John says in, in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son to, to come and die for us, he, he doesn't mean that God loved the world in, in the sense of its sin and its rebellion against God. He means that God loved the people of the world that, that he made in his image and that are part of the sinful world in, in, in order to... Uh, enough to come and die to, to rescue us. Which means, friends, that what John is saying here is that although as Christians we live in this world, although we're immersed, you know, although we're swimming in its attitudes and actions that are opposed to God and, and, and his ways because we haven't arrived in heaven yet, nevertheless, he says that while we are in the world, we're not to love it. We're not to allow this world that opposes God and his ways to get into us. Do do you see? Um, It's a bit like the sea, okay? Um, I went for a little paddle uh, along the beach in, um, not that kind of a paddle, but, you know, that kind of a paddle, Um, uh, in the the sea yesterday. It's lovely, isn't it, to be in the sea on a a hot summer's day. But if if the hot summer's day makes you thirsty... What you definitely don't want to do is drink the seawater, right? That's going to make you very sick. In other words, it's fine for you to be in the sea, but you definitely don't want the sea to be in you. And that's kind of John's point here. We can't help but live in this sinful world that's opposed to God, but whatever you do, don't let the world get into you. That's the point. Don't drink the waters of the world. And, and, and so get polluted with its, its sinfulness, its rejection of God and his ways, because it's going to make you very sick, spiritually speaking. In fact, it's going to endanger your spiritual life. So don't love the world, says John, because if you're so committed to the world and, and its ways and, and its thinking, then, verse 15, the love of the Father is not in you. In other words, if your living just shows up the fact that you don't love God and his ways, but you just love the world and its ways, well, that love and dedication to the world is just highlighting the fact that you're probably still unconverted, right? You're not really a Christian at all yet. The love of the Father is not in you. So John's command here is that if we claim to be Christians, then we are to make a clear and conscious break with the world around us. We can't go on living the way we were living when we didn't know God. So what does that, what does that look like in practice? <laughs> I like the, uh, the little one-liner um, the American Baptists used to use in the 1950s, all right, or, or maybe you recognize this, or if you were in, in one of those kind of uh, churches back in the, the day, you, you might have grown up knowing this chant, don't drink, swear, smoke, or chew, and don't go out with girls who do. You ever heard that? That, that seems, seems to be what, you know, the American Baptist church in the 1950s kind of, uh, kind of thought. That's what it looked like in, in practice for them. It was all about rules. 
wasn't it? Like, you know, some of you will remember this. No dancing, no playing cards, no wearing lipstick, no drinking beer, you know, whatever it was. Notice that John here, he's not just laying down a few rules, is he? He's not talking about things. He's not talking about money and possession and so on. He's talking about our attitudes to those things. Have a look at verse uh, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you see? It's not that things are wrong. It's that the responses, the reactions going on inside us as we contemplate those things are wrong. In other words, you can, you can put people in, in the most perfect of environments and we will spoil them and defile them. Right? Not because there's something wrong with the environment we've been placed in, but because there's something wrong with the human heart. Right? This is how Jesus speaks about it in, in Mark 7, for example, isn't it? There's nothing outside a person that by going into them can defile them, but the things that come out of a person are what defile them. From, for from within, out, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, and, and so on. All these things come from within, and, and they defile a person. So you see, worldliness doesn't primarily consist in what you do or the places you visit or whatever. It, it, it affects us much more deeply than that. It's our motives. It's our attitudes. It's what's going on in our hearts and our minds and our wills that will ultimately dictate our, our behavior. So either our affections are set on the world or they're set on God, but you can't love them both. And, and, and you'll notice John breaks down it, it for us in verse 16 three kind of ways in which we can be lured away from God towards the world. Did you spot those? So he mentions the desires or the cravings of the flesh, but by which he, he means, I think, the, uh, the abuse of those natural, those good desires that our bodies have. So, so for example, it's not like eating is wrong. Right? It's that gluttony is wrong. Or he's not saying that drinking is wrong. He's saying that drunkenness and addiction are wrong. Do you see? It's the abuse. He's not saying that sex is wrong. He's saying that the abuse of sex is wrong. Sex outside of the, the marriage of a man to a woman is wrong. So it's right and it's good that we enjoy food and drink and sex and so on. They're wholesome gifts of, of God to be used as he designed. But that's not how the world uses those good and godly appetites that God has given us, is it? No, the world distorts those things in selfish ways. The, the world says, no, go on, indulge yourself. It's okay. It's your body. You know, go ahead and, go ahead and do what you like. As long as you're not hurting anyone, don't hold back. You know, satisfy your desires however you like. It's up to you. That, that's pretty much the message of the world, isn't it? The only morals about sex that the world has are to have it consensually and safely. Right? The only morals about drinking the world has are to make sure you don't drive afterwards. And, and the trouble is, friends, that we as Christians are in danger of swallowing the same lie. Go on, what's the harm? It's all right, isn't it? 
Everyone else is doing it. And before you know it, we are saying yes to the world and its ways, and we're saying no to God and his ways. And and when that happens, we're declaring with our actions that actually it's the world who knows best what's good for us and, and not God. You'll see he talks about the desires of the eyes in in verse 16. And I think this is about the sort of the the all-consuming desire we have for more. Okay, we see something that we want. And and so we covet it. We we crave it. We we long for it. We've just got to have it. There's this all-consuming passion for more. It might be a person that we cannot have. Or a status that we crave, or a possession that we've just got to own, or a lifestyle that we, we, we can't help but chase. But in each case, we see something that we want, maybe it's on the TV or a magazine or online or whatever, and we keep going over and over that thing in our minds, and it sort of festers and, and grows, you know, like, like, like Gollum with his ring, <laughs> until we find ourselves more obsessed with that than with God. And then, of course, idolatry is the result. Uh, and then there's uh, verse 16, pride in possessions, or the pride that comes from being secure in what we have. You know, whether that's our possessions or, or our circumstances. So, so we take pride in the fact that we now have that, that longed-for job, or, or that, that house, or that marriage, or, or whatever it is. And again, there's nothing wrong with the things themselves. It's lovely to have a nice home. It's, it's great to have a good job. But when we start boasting in those things, when they become sources of pride that we use to kind of big ourselves up and make us look just a little bit better than the, than the other person. Well, then we're behaving like the world does. And, and what John wants us to remind us of, uh, verse 17, is that the world is passing away along with its desires. In other words, this, this world and its, its, in its rejection, its opposition to God, uh, it, it's all on the way out. All this stuff is going to be dust. So why chase after that? Why chase after the the desires of the world? Why trust in all that stuff? How silly to place our trust in what will ultimately be destroyed. Don't misuse the gifts that God gives us by taking pride in them. And and maybe we can see why why John is so serious about the, the command here. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Don't love the things that, that seek to threaten to lead you away from the God who saved you. And you know, friends, it, it might be a bit amusing for us you know, to uh, think of that bygone time and, and people who made up rules about dancing and lipstick and beer and so on. But you know, although I, th- I do think they, they misapplied Scripture um, uh, very often ended up with legalism, you know. Um, at least they were trying to apply scripture, you know, to how they lived. Uh, at least they did take a stand, you know, at least they did draw a line. At least they did seek to live a, a distinctive life for Christ, living in the world but not of the world. And friends, we, you know, we may need to be careful that in avoiding going to the extreme of legalism, we don't end up at the other extreme of not even bothering to draw a line anywhere. You know, just just drinking the polluted waters of the world without so much as a second thought. You know, we'll eat anything, we'll drink anything, we'll watch anything, and we won't even bother to ask whether it might be pleasing to God or not. Do not love the world 
and the things in the world, says John. Friends, it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it? Are we in danger of being so polluted by the world's thinking that we're just not even engaging in the battle anymore? We need to be ruthless with the desires of the flesh. We need to guard our eyes from the lusts. We need to have the right perspective on all our possessions and our circumstances, whatever they may be, because it's all passing away. John's concern here is that we are not simply people who project an image of holiness, but we are people whose lives actually are holy. And friends, we do not drift aimlessly into holiness. Right? We only drift away from it. So I think we need to hear this command and be intentional about pursuing holiness in our lives. So John contrasts the the world with the Christian and he gives us a command. And and now look, he he contrasts the antichrists and the Christian and he gives us a warning. And and the warning, look, you see this in verses 18 to 27. Really the warning is to beware of false teaching. And and if you have a look at verse 26, uh, for example, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So the the problem that that John's readers are facing is that there are are people around who are trying to deceive them, uh, to to kind of lead them astray. And friends, it's the same today, of course, isn't it? We, We mustn't be naive about this. You know, there's lots of false teaching around about Christ that seeks to lead people away from him. There's a ton of it. And John is saying, don't be deceived by these people. Don't let them lead you astray because you weren't expecting this to happen. And don't be surprised either that it comes from within the church because that's exactly what's happening here, uh, isn't it? Have a look at verse uh, 19. Uh, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Do you see, they left a church that was committed to Christ and and his gospel, and by doing so, they showed that they were committed to something other than his gospel. Their going revealed what they were like. So so why shouldn't this surprise us? You know, why why should it not surprise us when some so-called church leader, you know, pops up on the TV to deny the truth of the Bible? or, or the more, its moral implications for how we live. Why should that not surprise us? Why should we be desperately sad but not shocked when yet another denomination votes to undermine the Bible's teaching on sexuality, for example? Why should we not be surprised? Well, because, John says, verse 18, this is the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And what, what John means there by the last hour, or, or the Bible often calls it the last days, is the time between uh, Jesus' first coming and his second timing. Uh, second coming. In other words, the time in which John was living and the time in which we're living. And those days, he says, are, are going to, they're going to be dangerous times. They're going to be times filled with trouble. Uh, and that will include lots of false teaching, is his point. Jesus himself made the point uh, as well, didn't he? Very clear in Matthew 24. For example, there would be many false Christs that would come along, people who would teach falsehood, uh, uh, that would deceive even God's people. 
So we mustn't be surprised that these are the days that we're living in. And, you know, I, I don't know about you uh, uh, guys, but, but you know, I, I can get quite upset when I hear some church leader who denies the uniqueness of Christ and his death on the cross, you know, um, by saying that there are many ways to God. I, I, I just get really frustrated with that or sad about that or someone who, who sort of casually dismisses how Christ calls us to live as his distinctive people because the prevailing culture says something else really saddens me when people who call themselves Christians just reject what God says and pour scorn, actually, on those who are holding on to the truth. And, of course, it's really easy for us to be, to be shaken by that. But, you know, we mustn't be, friends, must we? Because these are the times in which we live, right, that John's first readers lived in here and, and that we live in too. And, of course, it doesn't take God by surprise. He's told us to expect it. And through John here, we we see the cause of it, don't we? Verse 18, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. That, that word antichrist, I don't know how that, what that sums up, conjures up in your mind, but probably all sorts of uh, you know, apocalyptic images and things like that. The word anti in, in, the, in the, the original, it just means uh, either instead of something or it means against or opposed to something. And, and, and in the word antichrist there, actually both of those two meanings sort of come together. To be antichrist is to put something else in the place of Christ, to put something against Christ. And, and you know, there are hints in the Bible, aren't there? John hints at it here as well, that one day, you know, before Christ returns, we can expect the antichrist to arrive on the scene. In other words, a, a person or, or maybe a, a, an all-pervading um, ideology that, that embodies all the worst characteristics of this, this antichrist spirit. And, and so John says he's coming or, or that's coming, but actually there are plenty of antichrists out there already. You know, people doing the work of opposing Christ, replacing Christ. And, and who's behind all of that? You know, who is the one that is against Christ and opposed to Christ par excellence? <laughs> well, it's, it's Satan himself, isn't it? The one who's opposed to everything that Jesus is and has come to do. He's the one behind all this anti-Christ teaching. And, of course, he longs to lead as many people astray by it as he can. So we should be very clear, friends, shouldn't we? False teaching about Jesus is not cool. You know, it's not, it's not edgy. It's not trendy. It's not culturally relevant. It's not progressive. It's, it's actually of Satan. He's the one behind it. And his aim is not to take you to heaven. It's actually to lead you away from heaven on a path to God's eternal judgment. Which is why John writes the letter here as the pastor that he is. Right? It's why those with pastoral responsibilities today are obliged to preach the letter. <laughs> you know, to, to expose the, the, the false teaching for the lie that it is. That's the job of the pastor, isn't it? Not just to teach the truth, but to expose the falsehood. It's the role of the shepherd, not just to feed the sheep, but to guard the sheep. That's what John's doing here. So that's the cause of the false teaching. But what about the content of the false teaching? Well, it's false teaching about Jesus, isn't it? Have a look at uh, verse 22. Um, 
Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So these false teachers are teaching that Jesus was not the Christ. Right? Then They're not denying Jesus outright. It's more subtle than that. But rather, what, what they taught, as, as we've uh, seen earlier on, is that, is that Jesus was just a human you know, on whom the divine spirit of Christ descended at his baptism and, and then left uh, at the cross. And, and, you know, a lot of people today might say, well, is that really such a big deal? You know, that, that theological difference? You know, can't we be a broad church? You know, can't we encompass different views for the sake of, of unity? But you see, the problem with the teaching is that it denies that Jesus is fully God. And and as we've seen, if you deny that Jesus is fully God, you deny that he's fully capable of saving you. So so, so that was the problem then. But, you know, much of the false teaching that's around now is also centered on the person of Jesus, isn't it? Some of it can sound very Christian. You know, different variants of this around, of course. But you, you could roughly kind of divide it into two kinds of false teaching, if you like. What we might call Jesus plus teaching and what we might call Jesus minus teaching so 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 some false teaching is jesus plus teaching isn't it in other words it adds to jesus it adds to his work on the cross by saying yeah jesus great but what you really need you know if you're going to be a proper christian or a really spiritual christian is jesus plus the keeping of these rules or Jesus plus these religious observances, or Jesus plus this extra spiritual experience. Do you see, it's Jesus plus something else. But other false teaching is kind of Jesus minus. In other words, it's taking something away from Jesus. The cults do this a lot. Uh, other religions do this, of course. S- some so-called you know, liberal or progressive Christianity does this as well. They say, yeah, Jesus is great, you know, but he's not divine. Or, or he's a good man, yeah, yeah, even a spiritual man, but he's not the only way to God. But to deny that Jesus is the Christ, says, says John, is to be a liar. However Christian it might sound, and, and if you believe that, verse 23, you don't know the Father. You're not a real Christian yet. And friends, I know that in today's problem, that, in today's culture, that is a, that's a problem for us, isn't it? It's a problem because our society has kind of reinterpreted, redefined the word tolerant, you know, which used to mean that, that uh, uh, used to mean that to respect the beliefs and practices of, of others without necessarily agreeing or sympathising with them. But of course, popular culture now, as, as, as that definition's changed, and we've moved from a society that in, encourages the, the free acceptance of uh, free expression of different opinions to a society that now has to accept the validity of all opinions. And so the claim of Jesus that he alone, as the Christ, is the way to God, is just not considered very tolerant, is it? But friends, it's true. It's the claim of Jesus himself, of course. And so we need to have the courage to stand for it. And of course, we do that with gentleness, don't we? And with respect towards everyone. But, but stand for it we must, because he's the only saviour that the world has. And so teaching that denies that leads people away from Christ, not towards him. 
So how do we do that? What's the counter to the false teaching? How do we stand firm in a culture that that rejects, that despises the truth uh, about Jesus? Notice two things, two gifts, actually, that John mentions. And the first one in verse 20 is the work of the Spirit. Have a look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. Or or look at verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What does he mean there by being anointed so that no one needs to teach you. You can imagine that that's up for quite a lot of misunderstanding, isn't it? But he's simply referring to um, the the fulfillment of God's promise, you know, in in Jeremiah 31 in, in the Old Testament, that all of God's people will receive the Spirit of God through the new covenant that Jesus has brought in. In other words, every Christian has the anointing of God's Spirit so that they can know God personally. They have Uh, the Holy Spirit inside them. So he's he's not talking about a a special experience for some elite Christian. He's talking about all of us. We don't need anyone to take us into God's presence. We don't need anyone to give us an inside track to God, you know, like the priests did in the Old Testament or like the false teachers were offering here. We, We don't need those kind of teachers, teachers offering us new things or new ways to God. Of course, we we do need teachers to remind us of the old things, the, the old ways to God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But not those offering us something new, something special, something, some, some different way, some different teaching. No, Christians have God's spirit within us. So we can know the truth. We can know God. So, so there's the work of the spirit, but there's also the gospel itself. In other words, the, the, the truth of God's word. Have a look at verse 24. Um, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. In other words, we need to make sure we remain in the truth of God's word. That that which we heard from the beginning, verse 24, we are to abide in. So, so in other words, don't, don't give up what you know for some new teaching, some new trendy speculation or sort of false teaching that actually denies the very heart of what you heard and trusted in at the beginning when you came to faith. And of course, John's made that clear, hasn't he, in chapter 1, that that is the good news of the gospel. Do, do, do you see the point? What's the counter to the false teaching? How do we stand firm in a culture that, that rejects the truth about, about Jesus and, and may well either, uh, even oppose those who love that truth? Well, actually, friends, all you need to have a full, mature Christian life is the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. Right? Move away from those things And they take you, they can take you to a place where you end up denying Christ and not knowing the Father. And that's not where John wants his readers to to end up. He wants us to know the truth and to stick with the truth because only by remaining, abiding in the truth of the word will you not love the world. And only by remaining in the truth of the word Will you not fall prey to the false teaching which seeks to lead you astray? And that's what true Christianity is all about. And so John gives us a loving command 
and a a loving warning because he wants us to know, to be sure that we are real believers, true Christians. Should we pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, your great desire for us is that we stay the course in the Christian life. Uh, You want us to keep trusting Jesus in the face of uh, the temptations of the world around us, in the face of those who deny the truth about you and teach uh, falsehood about you. Um, So, Father, please would you help us in these last hours, in these dangerous times, to continue trusting you, to remain in the truth of your word, growing to maturity uh, through the word of God, applied by the Spirit of God. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.